Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is Friday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Friday, February the 10th, and this is episode 3246, and since it is Friday, it's time for an expert council Q&A show, and I've got a pretty good lineup of folks for you, lots of diversity today, and the Ron Paul Liberty highlights were bankrupt, close the foreign military bases and bring everyone the heck home from Dr. Ron Paul. Dan McAdams says, likewise, it's time to stop interfering in Ukraine for everyone's sake, including our own. And Chris Rossini says, get rid of the IRS? Sure. The Fed should go out with the trash, too. Uh, Nicole Sauce will talk about thoughts on building community to enhance your lifestyle design. Sean Mills will talk about the difference between mono and poly solar panels and a snap decision people make because of a single word, efficiency, without actually digging into what that really means. Amy Dingman will talk about the importance of allocating one-on-one time with your kiddos when you're homeschooling multiple children. I think this is good advice for parents in general. It's maybe more important with homeschooling because you're all kind of in one place together all the time, uh, so you, you feel less of a need to like go get the kids and take them and go do a thing, but... I think this is really important, and we try to make sure that we do some of this with our grandchildren as well. Thoughts on design software for smaller projects, like let's say designing a chicken coop, Tilma the Tool Man Cook. John Pugliano has a brief market update on what's going on and some FOMO that's out there that is driving investment. And thoughts on AI and its impact on middle management in the future. And I have a question about using biochar in aquatic systems, and I'll tell you why. I think it's a very interesting idea but I don't think it probably would work well in aquaponics. It might work well in some of my larger systems where I'm not really trying to grow a lot of food in those systems. But even those, if I want to grow surface vegetation for feed for my animals, like azola or like water hyacinth, it may be the case that it works too well. But I am going to be experimenting with it, and I will talk about that. And using that is a form of biochar inoculation. High oxygen, lots of, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Aerobic bacteria uh, and fungi in aquatic systems. And there's a lot of potential, I think, maybe to use short cycling ebb and flow beds full of biochar as a, as a filter system in an aquatic system for a, a short period of cycles and then move it on into soil-based use because it will be fully inoculated. It's something I've been kicking around. So this question came in, and, and I'll talk about that in just a bit. With that, let's go ahead and dive on into it today on our Friday, starting out with the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. You know, I, I think one of the problems that the country has, the politicians have, is they don't want to admit a very important factor. We're broke. Uh, the country is bankrupt. Any business would have gone uh, to Chapter 10 or whatever it is a long time ago because we're broke. 
But uh, a government, especially if you can print the reserve currency in the world, you get away with this political murder in a sense. You can print, print, print and keep, keep it going for a long time. And we've had, you know, the uh, reserve currency in the world. So we deal with the bankruptcies differently. We're bankrupt. And nobody wants to admit it. They don't want to say the Federal Reserve has a lot, a lot to do with this. And they, they want to pass it by. But I think as soon as you spend money in Washington, it's a tax one way or the other because the money is spent and where are they going to get the money uh, to pay the bills? Where are they going to get the money? Well, they, they, they get it by taxing income tax and they have sales taxes. They have all kinds of taxes and, and there's never enough. And then they have to borrow money. So they go out in the market. Uh, the Treasury uh, prints uh, Treasury bills and, and, and uh, bank notes and they go out and collect money. People will loan the money to the government. Government is supposed to be very secure and you buy government debt. Uh, and then that finally ends. And then the government has to buy. And that's what QE was all about. QE was buying up the bonds and, and mortgage bonds and all these things because we still had the reserve currency of the world. And that was tied, tiding us over with the bankruptcy. But the bankruptcy is there. They don't want to talk about the spending that needs to be cut. And they're not going to talk about, you know, really seriously curtailing the power and authority of the Federal Reserve. And someone might ask, well, why are you guys talking about this? Are you somehow happy that Ukraine's not winning and Russia is winning? No, that's not the point. The point is we bring this up because think of the incredible cruelty and cynicism. If the experts quietly behind the scenes know that Ukraine can't win, yet they keep pouring weapons in pouring these young people and old people now into the meat grinder that they call Bakhmut and these other places. Think of the cynicism of people sitting in very comfortable offices around the Beltway, knowing it won't do any difference, but pouring them in anyway, instead of encouraging some kind of settlement to this horrible, horrible war. Well, I think when the smoke clears and after Americans see that the U.S. military, the U.S. government has thrown literally everything in its arsenal into this <laughs> war and yet still loses, which will happen, I think there's going to be some questions asked. Why? How can it be that we spend more than the next nine countries combined on our military, yet spending all of this money, all of these years, has not produced a military that can win? Now, we could say Afghanistan, 20 years against a pretty badly armed military and we still lost, et cetera, et cetera. I think people are going to ask, what are we paying a trillion dollars for every year if we can't even win this war? And I think the answer is going to be it's all corruption. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all to get the well-connected rich at the expense of everyone else. Yeah. I'll give the Republicans some credit. Abolishing the IRS, I mean, who doesn't want that? Uh, great idea. The only thing is, you know, we know the Republicans. It's a shell game. Uh, it's, they, they'll just switch around how they get the money out of you. Because the big issues are, are they going to end the empire? That is the biggest drain on our country by far. Uh, are they going to bring the troops home, shut the bases? No, they're not. Are they going to end all the welfare schemes and the cronyism with corporations and individuals and all the welfare? No, they are not. Are they going to end the Fed? Or, or is the Fed just going to be able to print money? They're not going to end the Fed. So, you know, this is a shell game. It's like the guys on the streets with the cups that they're just, they're, they're shuffling them around. And you're supposed to get, it's, you know, they're going to get the money out of us somehow. 
So we're going to end up going nowhere if the Fed is just going to print the money and we're just going to suffer from the inflation and pay the way we're paying at the stores now. Direct taxation is not the only game in town, unfortunately. Government has many ways that they can uh, extract from us. But like I said, it's good to float that idea out there about abolishing the IRS. That is a good idea. That's only one part of the puzzle. On, on the whole issue with Ukraine and this, this, this false dichotomy that you're either 100% pro-Ukraine, give them all they need, tanks, guns, let's go fight the war for them. Yeah, 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 Ukraine, Ukraine. You're either that or you're a tool of Putin, man. Like, I'll just quote ancient wisdom here. Sun Tzu from The Art of War. There is no instance of a nation benefiting from a prolonged warfare. There is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare. You notice he didn't say there's, there's, there's no instance... Of the victor in a war benefiting from prolonged warfare, or from the uh, the loser benefiting from prolonged warfare, that both nations suffer in prolonged warfare. And it's really easy to be like, ah, we gotta stand, we gotta do something, we gotta fight, because you're not doing anything. You're sitting over here eating your avocado toast, folks. That's what you're doing when you're raw rawing a war. It's half a world away from you, and you think you're supporting, and you think you're helping. This is a conflict that would have ended very quickly, and no, Putin wouldn't have taken over all of Ukraine, because that attempt hasn't even been tried. This is a border conflict in a more than eight-year-old, at this point, civil war, and it's not our business. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It's still not our business. It's not our place. We need to stop this, and I'm, I'm, I'm full on. With Dr. Paul, we're bankrupt. We can't keep policing the whole world. Close all these foreign military bases down. Bring our people home. Look after our own nation and our own borders. And 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 follow the wisdom of one of our founders, Thomas Jefferson: commerce with all, alliances with none. We need to end all of this stupidity. We are the most aggressive empire that's ever existed. You know, commensurate with my discussion with, with Professor CJ yesterday. We really are. We are the most aggressive empire that's ever existed. We, we use a lot of soft power in it. But if you look at how far we've spread out, how many places we exert our influence, and the fact that we can't stand any nation doing anything that's not in our book of approved things they can do. They can even be bad guys, but they have to do bad guy our way. Yeah? Doesn't it just sound like our entire political system? You can be a Republican, and as a Democrat, I will despise you, but you're playing the game right. You're the right kind of Republican. Oh my God, the orange man? No, it's literally Hitler. It's it's how it always is everywhere. The, the, it, when John Pugliano gets to his discussion, about and he talks about a fish dying from the head down, Right or a fish rotting from the head down. Look for the same pattern here. Look for the same pattern. Anyway, um, next up, this idea of getting rid of the Fed. The only way we get rid of the Fed is when the global shift, the global monetary system shifts. That that's that's the only potential to get rid of the Fed. Nothing we do as a people, no, nobody we elect, nobody we vote for. No writing letters to senators and congressmen. We will never get rid of the Fed ourselves. The Fed will have to die. I, I, I remain firmly convinced of that. Next up, Nicole Sauce on, but I'm all for it. Yeah, let's get rid of the IRS. Let's get rid of the Fed. Sure, sure, I'm all for it. In, you know, in in principle, 
I, I also don't spend a lot of time fantasizing about things that are, you know, never going to happen. And I want to point something out, too, that just made me think of, you know, Chris Rossini mentioned, like, you know, give it to the Republicans. At least they brought up the concept of, like, banning the IRS. Well, it's very easy to do right now since they don't control the Senate, since that's not going to happen, since the president would veto it, so they virtue signal. And if you have, have you ever noticed that the party that, that has power, when they have enough power to get things done that they don't do, the first thing they do when they lose power is start talking about doing the thing that they maybe could have gotten done prior to it and when they know they can't? An example would be, look how hard the Democrats are now running their mouth about banning guns or certain types of guns. Well, they had the Senate, the House, right? They had the Senate and the House and the White House for two years. And they really didn't talk about it. The second that they were out of power, hey, we're going to go do this thing because it's easy to talk about. I'm not, you know, not for, you know, for it, obviously, right? But it, it, isn't it interesting that they always do that? They always talk about doing things that they never try to do when they have power as soon as they're out of power. And, they, and then everybody pretends it's a threat. That the Republicans actually have the power to get rid of the IRS. Okay, sure. Sure they do. Minor-ass minority in the House. Two seats down in the Senate. The Republicans are going to destroy America and get rid of the IRS. Oh, okay, sure. Right? The Democrats don't have the House. Now we're going to ban all semi-automatics, which they're not going to do. Because it's not going to happen. Not right now, for damn sure. But all of a sudden, they're going to do it when the excuse for not succeeding will be, but we tried. The Republicans did it. It's it's pathetic that people even buy into this anymore. I need to just move on. Nicole Sauce on building community to enhance your lifestyle design. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee with some thoughts on community. You see, this week I was on the Survival Podcast as an interviewee, which is a little bit different than being expert counsel. And we talked a lot about building the life you choose on your terms, which is making no worries about what the Joneses are doing, just build what you want, and using a life strategic plan to move forward. And a lot of what we talked about was my journey. And pretty much every time there was a breakthrough, there was a person attached to it. And the way that I found those people was through community. What's interesting to me is that the way our society is structured now, where we dial things in by zip code for the government schools and how neighborhoods are set up in suburbs and urban areas and all of that, we end up with communities that are designed from the outside in. And the expectation is that you work with these people in your community, like immediately around you geographically, and that it is discouraged to self-organize around interests, like political interests and that sort of thing. That's, that's called narrow-sighted and that sort of thing. But if we look at how we work as people, it's completely normal that we want to hang out with people. If you're into blacksmithing, it's completely normal that you want to hang out with other blacksmithing people and do blacksmithing things. And the erosion of the churches in our society has made it so you're not organizing around faith unless you are a person of faith. So a lot of that's gone away. And any understanding of how true community works is it's not taught in our government schools, right? 
it's something you have to learn on your own through experience. And a lot of people have unhealthy relationships with their communities. They feel like forced into these relationships. There are people there they don't get along with. They don't develop strategies for either ignoring those people or just removing themselves and going to another community. And the reason I got to thinking about this is that Jack does events, I do events, and people who call themselves introverts come to those events and they leave and they say, wow, I've never had so much fun at an event. I've never met so many people who I can just get along with. They're, they have a totally different experience there versus student teacher night at their government school. Now, if you dig below that and look a little deeper, let's ask why. Why is why are those events more comfortable? Well, I think it's because those events are attended by people who self-organize around some core principles. A lot of people at those events are interested in permaculture, whether they have a homestead or not, whether they're doing permaculture practices on the land where they are or not. They are interested in permaculture. They are interested in taking ownership for their decisions and for their lives. They are interested in building a better future, and they're interested in letting go of excuses and being a doer, not a taker. And when you have groups of people like that, what happens when you talk to them is that they say, hey, I, I'm interested in beekeeping and blah, 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 talk about beekeeping. And their body language says, yes. I am interested in beekeeping. Conversely, if you're in a more fake community that has been structured by the government, basically, you'll find people saying, oh, beekeeping, I'm interested in that, to be polite to you. And their body language is like, oh, my gosh, this is so boring. And that's really stressful to be around. If You re you may not even realize you're reading the body language, but you are. And that can become a more stressful interaction because you know they're lying to you. Furthermore, in our culture, the negative, the crisis, the sharing of the drama has become something that is encouraged through our media centers. And so you can find in some of these more fake communities that you are exposed to a lot of other people's bull. And you'll find in events or communities like the Survival Podcast and Living Free in Tennessee, you will find that while there is some of that, mostly people will say something like, wow, man, I lost my job and it sucks to be me and I need to vent for a minute, vent. Okay, what can I do next? And there's this, always this look towards how do I take control? How do I move to the next step? And there's usually a bunch of people willing to talk to you about that. This brings me back to the question of that I always get, which is how do you build such a strong community, Nicole? How do you build? I know Jack gets this question all the time, too. And this is basically how both he and I have done that. We share our stories and we share our perspectives on a regular basis on podcasts and people listen to those. We are true to ourselves and genuine about our opinions. And if somebody doesn't like it, we don't really worry about that. We just say this is what it is. And here's a proper way to have a disagreement. And let's go on with life because 100% of the people will not agree with you 100% of the time. And if they did, it would be a really, really boring world. We also, when people are displaying unhealthy behaviors in the group, will shut them down and say, that's not what we do here. And that's a leadership thing. But more importantly, 
what we have done is made ourselves available and encourage situations where other people in the community set up meetups, group activities, online online systems like the Zello app that has a TSP group. And we've gotten out of the way and not tried to control the narrative and not tried to control it. All we do is say, here's the standard. If you are going to be a poisonous, horrible person, you're going to get booted. If you're going to be an, an asshole, you're going to be booted. If you are going to encourage people to invest their money in fraudulent business endeavors, you're going to be booted. But other than that, you guys get along with each other and have productive relationships. I'm going to stay out of the way. Once those things starts happening, you start seeing true community develop. Here's the other thing. If you are interested in participating in community, approaching it as what can I give to the community rather than what can I take from the community is a key to success in mindset. You may get all sorts of benefit from any community that you interact with. But if your core motivation is what can I get from this community, eventually people will figure that out. They will see an imbalance and they will maybe not like sit you down and say, Fred, you need to leave this community. Usually what they'll do is they'll just stop responding to you. And over time, you will move on to a different community. I say that because a lot of us want the feeling of security, happiness, support from a community. That's why we feel so alienated when we are participating in these more fake communities and when we finally find a community that we get along with that we can really participate in it gives you a feeling of security and it does give you security right so that's often the motivation people have but if you obsess overly on achieving those feelings and not on what can i give to this community you'll have a tendency to, to turn into a taker in that community so when you join a community Think about what can I give to the community? And you may think like, I've got nothing to give. Yeah, you do. You know something about something that somebody in that community does not know. Or if somebody says, I need help digging a ditch and you can dig a ditch, you show up and you dig that ditch. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be anything earth shattering. And if you are in Eastern Washington or somewhere and you feel like there is no community around me for me to join and I want to meet people in person, well, then it's up to you to start the community. And the, a great way to do that is to go to your community center, church, library, whatever. Get one of those free rooms. Find something that's that's of interest, like a movie that everybody might want to watch that you think, you know, people who watch this movie are people who I could get along with. Or people who are interested in the topic of ham radio or something are people I want to talk to. And either bring somebody in to present on that if you're not really into presenting or present on that and put flyers up around your community and say on Thursday at 7 p.m. there will be a ham radio demonstration. And then afterwards, we're going to have cookies and coffee or whatever and and hang out. Do that. See who comes. If only three people come, that's OK. I helped start something called Liberty on the Rocks in Nashville and at our first meetup, this is basically you sit down, you hang out with each other. There's no presentations. The idea is I'm interested in liberty and I'm interested in other people who are interested in liberty. So I'm going to come to this cocktail hour. So you go to the cocktail hour and you meet people and we put it out on meetup.com and all those other things. First one, three people were there. 
it was me and the other person trying to get it started and the two owners of the restaurant. And eventually one additional person showed up that day. Abject failure, right? Wrong. To this day, if you look up Liberty on the Rocks in Nashville, they have a monthly meeting. It's well attended. And it's because we did the first meeting, loved the people I met there. I am best friends with the owners of that restaurant at this point. Other people showed up the next week, the next month more. We chose a regular day and time. We did it every time. It went from five to 10 to 20 to 50 to lots of people. And it was simply because we were consistent and we had already found our tribe after that first meeting because it was the first couple of people. So it is success if only one person shows up and you meet that one person and then you decide what you're doing moving forward. Lastly, I want to talk about jealousy. When you start a meetup like that, like that ham radio example, and somebody comes and you have a couple of people and you have a great time. And one of them's like, hey, I coordinate this other ham group and our meeting is once a month on Friday and there's 50 of us. And you're like, dang it, their community's bigger than mine. Boo, I have competition. No, you just go. You go and you meet those people and pretty soon you'll decide, do I need to keep furthering my individual project or not? Maybe you do and you help each other out. Or maybe you start going to that one. That's how you find the community. And that's from an in-person community standpoint. I have never found anybody who, who really wanted to find community, who didn't eventually find somebody near them who they got along with in one of these ways. Or they took a class that was on a topic they were interested in. Mine in my immediate area started because I started selling at the farmer's market and other farmers are people who I tend to get along with. Right. That, that's how I did it. And then I started the podcast and then the podcast drew people in. That doesn't mean you have to start a podcast. That was my pathway. But what I had to do was come to the table with a servant mindset. How can I help you mindset? I had to know where my boundary was if somebody is taking too much for me to learn how to say no. That one was hard for me. And I had to be consistent. And over time, I developed the relationships. Now, here's the last thing. If there are meetups or events or anything that might be a group of people you could get along with, like Jack's spring work, uh, fall workshop, it is worth the investment of time and money to go to that to meet who's there. And what often happens at events like that, even if you go completely out of the area, is you meet somebody there who lives sort of close to you and you get to know them. You have some shared interests because you're both at the same expo or workshop or whatever. And if you get their information and keep in contact with them, boom, you've got a foundation for a community that's your community that might even transition into your family as mine has done. And I will say the event where I met the most important person to the Tennessee community we have here that's now national was at Jack's Workshop. It was somebody who lived in Tennessee who was at Jack's workshop. His wife was already listening to my podcast. He's like, I didn't know that was you. And we got to talking. And that is literally the, the original relationship, the foundational relationship for the Tennessee GSD crew. So I guess what I want to say today is if you're out there, you listen to the survival podcast or you listen, listen to my podcast or you listen to somebody else's podcast. I mean, obviously you listen to TSP because you're here. And you're feeling alone and alienated and nobody understands and nobody sees the problems and nobody is around to be encouraging. 
you're completely wrong. The only way to fix that is to change you. You're the only person you can change. And the best thing you can do is start getting out there and participating in interacting with people in ways that are complementary to your values and to your interests and see who you do have around you. So rather than I'm alone, ask who is around me who has shared interests and go find them and go interact with them and develop your community. Because as you develop more and more relationships around you, that makes that does make you stronger. It gives you people you can help when they need help. It gives you people who will help you when you need help. And it's a great way to learn new perspectives and new things. And it's how we win against anything we're afraid of in in the current atmosphere in our in our society. Because this atmosphere in our society that people are so scared of right now, it's been here the whole time. People just see it right now. And the counteraction to that has always been strong relationships, community, and taking individual action to build the life you want and to help other people around you build the life they want. I guess what I'm saying, guys, is it's up to you to build your own community. Get out there and do it. Use the tools you have. Join Jack's social networks. Join join my social networks. Start talking to people and find events to go to to interact in person. If you can't find one, do your own. Speaking of events, if you're interested in getting together with 500 of your closest friends in Camden, Tennessee, March 25th and 26th, we will be having the Self-Reliance Festival. I've got Bear Independent talking. I've got Mike from Forward Observer speaking. We've got Tag from Life Done Free. Joel Riles, our very own Joel Riles from Fortress Canine. John Willis from Special Operations Equipment. Of course, I'll be giving a presentation there as well. There are a bunch of really cool people, including CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast. That's all March 25th and 26th. Early bird pricing, 75 bucks through mid-April. Go to selfrelianceFestival.com to find out more. Make it a great week. I have very little to add to that because it was so fantastically done. I, I think that the, the thing that I see being the biggest uh, roadblock to people developing community is they try too hard to force community to what they envision it to be. And that generally results in disappointment and it results in you not being yourself. And then therefore, since you're not being yourself, you're not the kind of person that people like you want to hang around with because you're not being yourself. So like attracts like in the words of Richard Bach. So when you're not being like yourself, you're not acting like your real, your true self, you attract people that are acting like you're acting, whether they're their true self or not. They're in a mode that's, that's, that's more in kin with the mode you put yourself in, if that makes sense. A little metaphysics going on in there to a very small degree anyway. Um, and so people tend to lead with the concept of we're building a community to be preppers or we're building a community to be permaculturists or we're building a community to be Bitcoiners. Or and there's nothing wrong with that. I go to a Bitcoin meetup. I love going there. But what I love about it is it's not really a all about Bitcoin. It's it's You lead with relationships. You make friends with people that are good friends for you. That, and if you lead with the relationship community forms, if you try to form a community, you're trying to artificially create an organic thing. And it generally it's like some kind of weird, you know, uh, messing with genetics type thing. Like you're trying to redefine what this organism is supposed to be instead of allowing it 
to to develop on its own. Some people just don't get along, even if they have a lot in common. And that's okay. And so you have to have, in a community, enough space for, like, Bill and Tom just don't get along. Bill likes everybody that Tom likes. They both they get along with everybody else. It's okay. As long as it doesn't become a problem. And it, a lot of times when you just let those things alone, and you don't feel the need to make everybody love each other, then things just do work better. Anyway, with that, let's talk about solar panels now. Mono and poly, what is the difference? Sean Mills. Hey everybody, it's Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about mono versus poly solar panels for my expert segment. I've noticed that a lot of people have a preference for the monocrystalline panels without necessarily understanding why that they think that it's better. They just heard, hey, they're better, they're more efficient, right? Okay, well, what does efficiency really mean when we're talking about solar panels? It means that if I have a 300-watt solar panel with a certain efficiency rating, and I've got another 300-watt solar panel with an efficiency rating that's slightly higher, the higher efficiency panel will be a slightly smaller than the lower efficiency panel. That's it. That's the only difference. They're both 300-watt panels, and they're both going to generate generally the same amount of electricity. Now, there are a few differences that I will cover here in a moment, but a 300-watt solar panel is a 300-watt solar panel. And the idea that somehow going with the mono panel, unless you're in some very specific types of applications, um, is just generally better than poly, uh, is actually not the case. And a lot of people are spending more per watt than they need to because they think they're supposed to have the mono panels, but the application they're putting them in, um, a poly panel would do just fine. So really, what's the difference? When a solar panel is manufactured, it generates electricity through a process called the photovoltaic effect. This photovoltaic effect is caused by semiconductor materials such as silicon that are sliced into thin wafers. These wafers, if they are treated a certain way, uh, they will create an electric field, and that field is what generates the electricity that flows through the junction box into the wires and hopefully into your house. So why would you have two different types of panels? Well, when this silicon starts as a tube and it's sliced down into individual wafers, those wafers are then inserted into the solar panel and there is waste. Well, the industry discovered that the waste from those um, manufacturing processes could actually be glued together and you could make other panels with the cut-off pieces, right? The irregular parts that weren't the perfect thin slices of the tube that they started out with. So a mono panel is just that. Each cell, it's its own thin wafer. It is going to be more efficient than a polycell where each cell is pieces of wafers that are glued together, okay? That is the difference. Now, why would you want one versus the other? And how can you tell the difference? Well, it's actually very simple. A monocrystalline solar panel is going to look black, whereas a polycrystalline panel is going to look blue. You can look at them and you can tell which is which. Like I said, per square foot, the mono panel is going to be um, more efficient. So per square foot of 
of generation space, the mono panel is going to be more efficient. Now, um, there's one other thing that's called a temperature coefficient that you should understand. And what a temperature coefficient means is that a solar panel will generate less electricity the hotter it gets. Now, if you think about why this is the case, it kind of makes sense. And it also kind of ties in with why a mono panel is more efficient than a poly panel. So if you think about electrons as a bunch of little guys standing around looking for something to do, and then when sunlight hits them, they get really excited and they start running around, okay? And the panels are made so that when those electrons are running around, they're kind of you know, shuttled into a specific path where they get together and then they create an actual current, right? That's what we want. Well, on a mono panel, because it's one thin wafer, then those electrons can move around easier. Whereas on the poly panel, where you got a bunch of different wafers kind of glued together, well, if I'm standing here, I've got to go across to that other piece, and maybe there's like a crack that I have to go across. So me jumping across a crack every 15 feet, I'm going to move slower from point A to point B than if I was just sprinting in a straight line on a slick surface with no, uh, no, you know, issues, nothing in my way, right? So that's the idea. Well, the other thing is, is that those uh, those uh, electrons are more excited when they start because it, when they're hotter. Excuse me. When they are hotter, they're more excited. So the likelihood that they break off and create a current is lower. Okay, the potential energy, so to speak, is lower. And how they measure that is called the temperature coefficient. So when a solar panel is tested, it's normally tested around 77 degrees Fahrenheit, 25 degrees Celsius. And then for each half a degree, or rather for each degree above that in Celsius, or about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, it loses one half of 1% of its efficiency or lower. Now, a poly panel is going to be in that half a percent range. A mono panel, it's going to be maybe quarter of a percent, maybe a third of a percent. Okay. So that's where that temperature coefficient difference comes into play. Now, why would that matter? Well, if I have a solar field that has a megawatt of solar panels in it, or I have my solar panels mounted up on my roof with my black asphalt shingles, well, those panels are going to generally be hotter than any other type of application. And so in that system where on the very, very hot roof or where I've got thousands of panels or a half a percentage of efficiency loss really begins to add up, those are the two places where, okay, maybe going with the mono panel makes sense. Let me rephrase that. At a utility scale, Going with a mono panel almost always makes sense. On a uh, residential scale, it's only going to make sense if your roof is going to be really hot. So you have to think about the area that you're in. And even then, the efficiency loss might actually be better for your charge controller or better for your all-in-one inverter. So there's lots of different things that go into this evaluation. But generally, those are the differences between a mono panel and a poly panel. If you have the room and you're not worried about having a few extra square footage of panels in your array, go with the cheaper poly panels. 
If you're going up on a roof where you're limited in an area where efficiency is really a big deal and you want to squeeze the most uh, generation out of the smallest amount of space, well, in that case, those mono panels are going to be the way you want to go. Well, that's it for me today. Thank you, guys. Get the questions in, and I will get them answered and back to Jack. We are very fortunate to have a gentleman like Sean Mills as part of our expert council. That was very informative. Uh, Appreciate you, Sean. I should note right now, I have almost no questions in the bank for next week. I try to, you know, I like to end my week where I have enough questions answered by expert council members that I already know I can do my next week's show. If I need one or two during the week, it's not a big deal. They'll always come in. Right now, I have like, I have more than two, but I only have from two people material and so i need questions for the expert council you can ask them a question all you do is send an email to me jack at the survival podcast.com put tspc expert in the subject line and tell me who your question's for and what your question is and be very concise with it then give details after you are bottom line up front concise and we'll try to get you an answer because i need to shake the piker tree but if i don't have questions it's hard to do Anyway, next up, the importance of one-on-one time with your kids when you have more than one kiddo, especially if you're homeschooling. Hey, everybody. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmer's Kind of Life podcast, and I am here today to talk about something that I think is really important that parents do, especially if they have more than one kid, and especially if they are a homeschooling parent, because homeschooling parents end up spending a lot of time with their kids, right? And their kids end up spending a lot of time with each other. So what we're going to talk about today is why I think it's really important that you spend some one-on-one time with each of your kids. Now, why in the world would you need to spend one-on-one time with your kids when you have all this time you're spending with your kids? Why do you need to take your kids out singly on a special date. I'm going to tell you why. Number one, one one-on-one time makes them feel special. You know what makes a kid feel really awesome? When they're recognized as an individual. Homeschooled kids spend a lot of time with their siblings, and having that chance for one-on-one time with mom or dad is pretty special. Number two, your children are different when they get a chance to spend one-on-one time with you. You know how we all act different? In different groups of people, you know, you might be different with your extended family than you are standing in line to sign up for homeschool soccer or hanging out at your spouse's office party. Like we're all different in different situations and your kids are different when they are not with their siblings. You can spend all day with your kids and have them figured out in a group, your family unit, but they are so different when they are apart. And you know what? You are different when you are not parenting everyone, okay? So while it's really awesome to experience your kids separately, it's also really awesome for them to experience you separately. Number three, one-on-one time helps you learn things about your kids. Your kids really have the opportunity to, to kind of shine when they're not waiting their turn to do so. Conversations that wouldn't happen at home in a group with all their siblings, the chaos of all the siblings, suddenly those those conversations happen when it's just one-on-one, right? And and I don't think you should head into your, your one-on-one date with an agenda because kids are really smart and they're going to catch on. Just just talk to your kids. Just just see what's going on. You might be amazed what comes up. Now, I, I keep saying taking your kid out on a date, right, one-on-one, doesn't have to be a big, huge, expensive thing. 
Um, in fact, if you're going to make it a big, huge, expensive thing, it's probably more likely you're not going to repeat it as often as you should, especially if you have a lot of kids. You know, this is different. If you got two kids or ten kids, we're talking a different thing here. But you know what? Like, take them out for dinner or lunch. Go to the ice cream shop. Go to the grocery store. Sometimes just tagging along on a normal errand and not having any siblings to pester you is a really big treat, right? Just going on a walk. There's something about walking side by side and not having to talk that makes them actually want to talk more. I found this with my boys as they got older. And and maybe they don't want to talk. And it's fine. Just hanging out together one-on-one. You're, you're building. You're kind of setting things in motion. You know, like, I am here. You can talk to me. You can talk to me alone. It's fine. It's cool. Another easy date is a car ride. It's really funny, but sometimes kids just want to ride with. They, they want to be in control of the radio. They want to pick the playlist. They want to ride shotgun. They want to talk to the driver. They, they want to help you pump gas or wash the windshield or pick up cat food or mail a package just because. Because it's just you and them. If you don't know what you should do on your date, ask what they want to do. Ask them, if you had an hour to spend with me, where would you want to go? What would you want to do? And give them some, you know, parameters if you have to, you know, within 20 miles of our house or whatever and see what they come up with. You, you might discover your kiddo wants to go explore something you didn't know about, you didn't know they were interested in, and now you're going to spend an hour doing that together, just the two of you. How cool is that? Now, do you have to leave the house? I mean, you don't have to. Sometimes one-on-one time with your kid might be playing Legos <laughs> or having hot chocolate on the front step together. But there really is something about getting away from the house, especially if you have a lot of kids, which ironically will probably make it more difficult. If you're not able to do individual dates for whatever reason, and sometimes, let's face it, sometimes you're just not in a position to do so, try having an outing with just your older kids or just your younger kids or just the boys or just the girls. Any way that you can focus your attention more individually is a chance for your kids to, to feel special and get a little bit different time with you. Now, how, how often should you do this? Whatever works for you. There's, there's no set thing that has to be, and it's going to depend on a lot of stuff. It's going to depend on the number of kids you have, the ages of kids you have, what kind of supervision the kids who are left at home need from another adult, and whether or not you even have that available to you. Lots of different things are going to dictate how often you're able to take advantage of this this one-on-one time with your kids. I know families who uh, do a special kid parent outing once a week. I know others who can only do it once a month. I know some people who are like, this is our one day this season that you get me one-on-one. So whatever it is, choose a time frame that works for you, something that's reasonable, something that's doable, something you can feel relaxed about. Because a kid-parent date should be a fun thing and not a reason to feel guilty or get all stressed out. So there you have it. Uh, That's my tip for you today. Go ahead and send more questions for me to Jack about homeschooling or parenting or family life. You can find me at my podcast, the Farmish Kind of Life podcast. You can find that just about anywhere you look, probably. And I would love it if you would head over to Amazon and check out my homeschool highway series. That is my honest thoughts about our 15 years as a homeschooling family. I talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between, because that's what I do. Thanks for listening, you guys. Have an awesome day. You know, I'll, I'll give you a really simple example of how to do this with the zero cost. My uh, my son and my daughter-in-law are doing this intentionally, spending one-on-one time with the kids. Every day, they spend one-on-one time with one of their kids. And all they do is this. The bedtime ritual is you do some reading together. So one night, you know, my son Matthew reads to Braylon, 
and my daughter-in-law Tiffany reads to Tegan, and then the next night they swap. And they just do that every night at bedtime. And that way there's always sometimes set aside that's just daddy-son, daddy-daughter, mama-son, mama-daughter. And it's just a natural, easy progression. And even if you had more kids, you can kind of work your way through uh, that across time. And I really appreciated what... um, what Amy said about how your children are different people when they're in a one-on-one situation, so are you. I think that's true. I think that's true in many ways. With that, let's go ahead and hear from Tim Toolman Cook on design software for smaller projects, like let's say building a chicken coop. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer yet another question for the expert council guys, so let's jump right in. Today's question says, Hey Jack, I got a question for Tim Cook. Hey Tim, do you know or do you have any experience with any design software? I want to design and build my own chicken coop. I have used Google SketchUp in the past to design a bunk bed, but I'm looking for something easier to use and more tailored to standard lumber sizes. Any information would be greatly appreciated. Andrew. So I have to admit, I don't have a ton of experience with design software. Last time I remember really using it was for AutoCAD in high school, all those years ago. (laughs) I decided to learn how to use AutoCAD instead of building things in shop class, so there's that. But I did ask around to a couple of my fellow content creators who are in the construction industry and who build a lot of projects from scratch, and the one that you mentioned, SketchUp, by far is the most... Um, enjoyed and used online by people. There's so many benefits from it, but let's let's dive in. There's there's two main ones that you're going to see online. Everybody's going to see SketchUp and Chief Architect. Those are the two. Now, the benefits of SketchUp are it has a very uh, short learning curve, so you can pick it up and learn it. It's very intuitive. It's web based, so you don't have to download anything. It works kind of similar if anybody's used Canva for design. That kind of seems to be the way of the future with a lot of these apps. They're just directly in the browser. You log in, you use them, and they're not clunky like they used to be at all. It's um, a 3D design software, and it's great for small projects like this. You, The guys I talk to use it for building sheds, use it for building garages, use it for building custom cabinet projects. So the sky's the limit with SketchUp. And what I like about it is it's free. <laughs> Did I mention it's free? That's always a bonus. But... You can add as much or, you know, uh, put in as many plugins as you want. There's a lot of free plugins on there, but it works very similar to WordPress if you're uh, familiar with how that works. So if there's something out there you want to do with the, the program, you don't have to download a great big bloated program. You can just go out and either find a free plugin or in most cases, purchase a plugin that does exactly what you want to do with it. Also, what's kind of cool, not that this necessarily jumps out for you, but If you, down the road, decide you want to build bigger projects, you can easily export the results from SketchUp, send them to an architect who can then turn them into blueprints for you. It's just a a very simple, easy-to-use project program. And uh, it did used to be, you mentioned Google, it used to be owned by Google, but it got sold in 2012, so it's its own standalone program now. So if you're not a big fan of Google and that sort of thing, then, uh, yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, even going through, uh, one of the places that I check a lot for this kind of stuff, and it's a good resource for a lot of questions if you have, you know, looking for answers for that sort of thing, but I go through Reddit a lot. Now, Reddit can be an, an absolute cesspool, but it can also be 
a, a treasure trove of information. You just need to find the right places because it's basically been an ongoing forum for 20 years where people answer this kind of stuff. So if you're ever uh, just wondering, hey, what do people use? What do people recommend? That is one of the places other than, say, you know, Amazon reviews or Google search results that I go to, and it tends to help quite a bit. Now, like I said, just for the record, Chief Architect is out there as well. It's a paid program. And, you know, it, it has a $99 plan, a $599 plan, and a $3,000 plan. So if you're looking at getting into like full home design, you know, full 3D mock-ups, things that are basically blueprint ready that just need to be stamped by an architect, then if somebody's out there looking to do that, then Chief Architect will work. But for you, who is, you know, just building small projects, chicken coops, and if it was me and I'm just looking to build a small project like this, I don't want something that's going to take me, you know, 10 weeks of online tutorials to learn. SketchUp, from what I've read, seems to be the program that you can jump in, use, and then go ahead and build. So I hope that helps. I learned some stuff putting this segment together as well, guys. So keep the questions coming. Always love hearing from you. I've had a lot of questions coming through all at once lately, so appreciate that support, guys. And, of course, if you want to know more about what I'm up to, uh, two places, toolmantim.co, that's the easiest place. And then, of course, drop by the uh, YouTube channel. We stream everywhere. We stream on Twitter, Twitch, Rumble, Odyssey, YouTube, Facebook, all of the places. So come by 7 p.m. Mountain Time Saturday, sorry, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday for a live stream of the Workshop Podcast. Come by, become part of the community, and just hang out, guys. So that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I don't have any experience in this world at all. I've never been a software person for design. I'm old school. I use graph paper uh, and a pencil to do designs of things like that. But I, I get the point that if you wanted to go to something that required blueprints for some sort of sign-off or something, being able to get it to the point where the architect might change a few things to make it, like, to code or to fix the thing you screwed up that you didn't know. But he knows what you want. I think that's awesome. Uh, it's one of those skill sets, like... People think, like, you know, you know about everything. No, I don't. And I think we all do have to pick and choose what skill sets we develop because we can't develop them all. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever mess around with SketchUp, but if, but it seems like it might be worth doing. I'm not sure yet. Moving on, let's hear from John Pugliano uh, with some thoughts on artificial intelligence and with some thoughts on the current situation with the market. Well, hey, TSP. I've got a question from Neil in Arizona. Before I get to that, I want to give you just a really brief stock market update. The market has performed extremely well these first six weeks of the year or so. And I know it's caught a lot of people by surprise, but it, it's actually very typical. There's a seasonal effect going into January, especially when you come off the back of a bad year. And one of those factors is, is that people are taking advantage of buying back in to all the stocks that were sold to harvest losses from the end of the previous year. You combine that with the fact that the media has made a big deal out of the straw man argument that the Federal Reserve is either going to be pausing or potentially lowering rates sometime in the near future. And then all the cash that's been sitting on the sidelines because so many people were spooked last year and did get out of the market, and then the market starts going up. And so you've got this real big fear of missing out, and the FOMO just builds and builds, 
And as people see as the market goes up, they want to jump back in. And in my opinion, what we're seeing, and you know, preface this like I always say, I can't predict the future. But in my opinion, what I think we're seeing is a junk stock rally. Now, there's a lot of names for this. Sometimes it's referred to as a relief rally, a sucker's rally, a dead cat bounce, catching a falling knife. And a lot of euphemisms on Wall Street as to how to describe it. But if you look at the underlying market and not only just look at the indexes, but look at the movements in individual stocks, you'll see that a lot of the leadership that's really catching all the momentum and the volume and the price increases, these are not only the losers from last year, but these are companies that had very flimsy balance sheets and business models to begin with. So think of all the meme stocks where their price got hyper-escalated during the hysteria of the pandemic. These are companies that not only weren't profitable, but for the most part didn't even have sufficient cash flow to cover their expenses or to service their debts. And consequently, when the panic set in, these stocks dropped, you know, in some cases anywhere from 70 to 90 percent. And in recent weeks, we've seen big rallies in a lot of those stocks. And because of the way that recovery percentages work, it looks like they're up an extreme amount and they are off their low. But if you compare them to where they were at, you know, 18 months ago, they're still down, you know, 60 or more percent. I'll just throw out one name here, and that's Bed Bath & Beyond. Now, I've dubbed this company Bed Bath & Beyond Bankruptcy. This was a company that was in trouble before the pandemic, and their prospects are even worse now. I mean, they're literally teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Their debt is trading for pennies on the dollar. And yet in the company stock itself, which has less value than the bonds, we're seeing investors jump in in droves with unbelievable volumes and hysterical price swings from day to day. Just to give you an example, just in terms of volume alone, over the last 20 trading sessions, the daily volume of the stock traded equaled the entire amount of the stock in circulation. And just to give you a more detailed breakdown on that, on February 6th and 7th, the volume of the stock traded on those two days was anywhere from two to two and a half times the entire issuance of the stock. And to further the insanity, on those two days, on February 6th, the stock price was up over 92%, and then on February 7th, it was down over 48%. This stock and many of the other meme stocks are back to being nothing more than mindless speculations. When I see stock markets like this, I just don't even want to participate. And so again, I'd urge you to proceed with caution and resist the urge to participate in the FOMO. Wait, on to Neil's question. And incidentally, I'll give a shout out to Neil. I met Neil one time when I was in Arizona. Now I meet a lot of people. I don't often remember everybody because I'm not that great with faces and names. But Neil does stick out in my mind, and the reason for that is that when Neil introduced himself to me, in addition to telling me he was a big fan of my podcast, he handed me a box of 357 Magnum ammo, proving that he was a real follower of my work and knowing that that was one of my all-time favorite calibers. So thanks again for the ammo, Neil. It got put to good use. And here's Neil's question. With artificial intelligence becoming more prevalent in middle management reporting, with middle management report analysis, do you think it will be harder for companies to cook the books and spin their earnings reports? Well, Neil, that's a really a mixed answer here. Um, for companies that truly want transparency throughout the organization, then artificial intelligence and expert-type systems that are replacing the jobs of middle management 
And again, this is a topic that I covered in my book. That transparency will be there, and it will not only eliminate the need for a lot of paper-pushing middle managers, but it will also give the CEO an instantaneous snapshot of exactly what's going on in the company. So to the extent that the CEO is honest and wants that transparency, it will be there for them. And I think that that is one of the factors that artificial intelligence is going to have on making businesses more efficient. However, you know, there's an old Italian saying that the fish rots from the head down. Most of the time when you have corrupt middle management that are playing these financial tricks, it's because at the top of the organization, you have the same culture. You know, corrupt CEOs hire corrupt mid-level managers. And so in that case, no artificial intelligence. I don't think that'll change anything. It'll just enable people to cook the books in a black box where it's, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And you can look at the shenanigans of a company like FTX, where the corruption there was, you know, all the way at the top. And that's always the way it is. If you remember a few years back, Volkswagen got caught with the pollution control systems in their computers that were programmed and designed to make their emissions look a lot better than they were. So, you know, to that extent, bad guys will find ways to get around the system. Hey, as always, thanks for the questions. Until the next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. So good stuff from John. Um, Let's talk a little bit now about biochar, which is kind of my current thing. And I really am going to do a show someday, how the current thing can be a good thing or something like that. Because there is the whole idea of the current thing. The current thing is Ukraine flag in your Twitter profile, which tells me that I shouldn't follow you. Uh, you know, the current thing is uh, being upset about a balloon. The current thing, like, you know the current thing, right? The meme of the current thing. Well, I think that there is something for developing the the, the the mindset of a polymath, the modern renaissance man, to move from current thing to current thing, but in a very proactive way. I had to pause there for a moment for a very low-flying F-35. I always wonder if one day they're going to just take me out to shut me up. Anyway, uh, there's nothing to shut me up for about today. My current thing being biochar, I am talking about... Uh, learning as much as you can by taking a current thing and kind of digging into it. That's what I've been doing with this. So someone wrote me an email, actually several people have asked me this, about using biochar in aquaponics or in aquatic systems because of its filtering capacity. Now here's the thing about doing that. I think that there's, there's, there's a couple ways this could be done. If you did it long-term enough, Eventually, the biochar would take up about all that it really can take up, and the plants get it back, just kind of like using it in the soil. But I think that you would have an incredible capacity for nutrient uptake in an aquaponic system, a massive capacity for it. And it might take quite a while to completely move past it. And the reason would be that you're using the charcoal as a filter media and the quantity of the charcoal relative in surface area to the volume of water would be extremely high. Do you you see what I'm saying? So if I take biochar and I put it in compost and it's 20% of my compost and then I I incorporate that compost into my garden, my biochar portion of my, you know, garden soil in the first six inches is maybe one or two or three or four percent. 
But if I fill up uh, a bed of some form with pure biochar, it's very possible that um, you know I have, let's say, a 21 gallon um, mixing tray, 20 gallons of biochar. That's a lot of biochar, and I think that it may. You, what you might find is when you put that into a system, if you are growing plants, all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of very unhappy plants. Again, however, if you ran it long enough and there's enough in the system, biochar might make a great ebb and flow media. It's not going to break down. It's not going to stink. It's extremely lightweight. You know, it, it kind of sort of floats even when it's really hydrated. It, you know, water makes it somewhat buoyant. That's actually good. That's leka floats, which is the little puffed marbles. My other thought, though, is it may be something that can be short-cycled in a larger aquatic system while nutrient load is high, and then that biochar can go straight into a garden. I think that might be a good way to go. I'm, I'm really not sure exactly how to use this yet, but I do have the system that I can dump duck poop into, right? And I don't really want to, like, take too much out of that system because I use it so heavily to grow food for the ducks in. But it would be a good place to experiment with because I can always up the nutrient load. I can always just fill the poop tank, you know, two days in a row instead of every other day and dump it into the pond every day for a week instead of every other day. It would also be an interesting thing to be able to have some basically like empty ebb and flow beds that are just sitting there ready to go. Maybe take 10 seconds to install them. That if you had a system that was having a, a runaway nutrient problem, you could then psych, start cycling that system through uh, biochar. I think that there's there's work to be done here. There's some other things that I've been thinking about how I can incorporate this. So one of the things I need to do, and I haven't done it yet this, this season because it's still so cold, is my systems throw water up to tanks. They overflow those tanks back to the lower sump tanks. That's how... I run my recirculation, right? That way I can use a pump once and I can make water fall multiple times coming all the way back down. Well, each of those upper tanks functions very effectively as a solid separator. Uh, and you end up with a lot of muck at the bottom. And I just take the plastic black uh, aquatic plant planters. They're about four inches square, maybe bigger than that, maybe six inches square, fine mesh. And they're designed, you fill them up with media, and you plant an aquatic plant, and you sit it in the water. Those things. And I take those and use them like a net, and I just drag them on the bottom of these smaller tanks, and I get a ton of sludge out of there. My concern is that sludge is largely anaerobic. Usually I just throw it into my composting uh, pit that the ducks get all those kitchen scraps and stuff like that in. But I'm thinking if you were to somehow utilize that with biochar, uh, it, it would be an incredible inoculum. I just don't like the idea of inoculating with um, something like that and ending up with a lot of anaerobes in the inoculation. So one of the things I thought of is maybe treating it kind of like a compost tea. So I have, let's say, a 32-gallon trash can with a spigot on the bottom of it. I could set that up on top of a couple cinder blocks to make taking stuff out of the bottom easy. And I could run an air compressor pump into that. And then when I do the clean out, dump it all in there, give it enough water along with it that it will aerate. 
and give it 48 hours of oxygen. Just heavy, nonstop oxygen. That should culture the hell out of the biology that is aerobic, and it should give that biology a massive advantage over the anaerobes, and then it could be incorporated with biochar. And that could also go right back into that pit, because remember, every year, that pit plus the uh, waste from the chicken duck coop all get composted. So what I'm trying to do with biochar in my systems, instead of radically changing what I do so that I can incorporate biochar, I want to just plug biochar as a thing into what I already do. And so, again, I've started feeding it to my birds. I just, when I feed them, I throw a cup of biochar spread between their three feeders that they get their feed in. Uh, I put it in their coop, right? So I, I think adding this somehow into the aquatic thing is the next thing for me. It really is. Exactly how, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure exactly the how yet. If you have any ideas... I'd love to hear from you. If somebody out there has actually done it, I'd like to hear from you. I know, for instance, one of the systems I saw somebody try to build, and I think their problem was not what they thought it was. Right? They thought their problem was the problem I was bringing up. The biochar works too well. I don't think they had enough fish. But what they used for filter media I found very interesting. Black walnut shells. <gasps> Black walnut Jack, don't you remember Juglone? Ah! Again, Juglone and the biochar kiln gone's the way, right? Uh, Half-Life uh, is, is about 60 days on it. Anyway, um, the reason they used it is because biochar is fragile, but how fragile is proportionate to what it's made from. So if you were to make biochar from corn cobs, it would make very fragile, very easy to crush biochar. If you make it out of oak, it's going to be a harder charcoal, even though it's very soft compared to the parent feedstock of oak. I don't know if you've ever cracked a black walnut before. It, the, the black walnut shell, not the husk, the shell, is one of the hardest damn nuts. I would put it up there with butternut. Butternut and black walnut, both juglones, very, very hard shells. Compared to you know their cousins like Carpathian English Walnut, uh, which you can crack with your hands, or a pecan, which you can crack with your hands. Uh, the butternut, hickory nut, and black walnut, those husks are tough. And it makes me wonder, like, we have a ton of nut mass that ends up rotting to the ground. Maybe that's for some people. You know, if you live in a place where there's hickory nuts everywhere, maybe it's a good bio bio uh, char feedstock and I know again yeah, uh, uh, this person wasn't having any symptoms of black walnut juglone toxicity in their plants what they had was plants that were clearly undernourished and their their hypothesis was it was somebody's YouTube video I was watching was that the biochar was so good at taking the nutrient out of the tank that there wasn't enough nutrient left. And I think there was some of that. I think the reality was they had a few very small fish in a system that was of significant size. And so when you, when you run aquaponics, as I always say, an aquaponics is an over-filtered, over-stocked system. That's how you make it work. Your stocking density exceeds what a rational person would do if it was an aquarium like the ones I keep tropical fish in. You know, that one inch per gallon rule is out the window. 
right? That's that's kind of what they said. Like if you have a 55 gallon fish tank and it's properly managed, then you can have 55 inches of fish in it. So you can have 55 one inch fish, or you can have about 10 five and a half inch fish, and and you're going to end up with about the same waste load. And that's a sensible thing, and you can certainly exceed that if you do what I do with in, even inside. I kind of hot rod my filters and increase surface area. But when you're doing it to grow plants, you need such an excessive load and such an efficient filter medium that the nutrient excess becomes available to the plants and doesn't kill the fish. So it's overstocked and overfiltered by design. So if you take an over-filtered, understocked aquaponics system, that media can be totally inert. It can be biochar. I don't care what it is. There's not going to be enough nutrient for the plant life. And, and that's something many people that are new to aquaponics struggle with. So I want to do this. I have different ideas and options as to how to do it. Um, I have one little pond, the one that I did for my wife, that is like a couple hundred gallons, if that. Uh, it's like a four four by four little Miyagi timber frame pond, and I have a a sink bowl in it for a bird bath, and it's kind of cool. But I have a heart like that is the one pond I have not been able to get rid of the green algae in it. I've put barley straw in it, and I'm wondering if I ran some biochar filtration through there, if we could knock that back. Uh, I think maybe we could. Anyway, with that, I have wrapped up another week with you guys. I hope you guys really enjoyed the two-part series this week of the 13 stomps that were done on Tuesday and Thursday. If you didn't check those out, please do. That has been life-changing material for so many people. And I have a goal. I have a goal for 2023 that by the end of the year, I'm going to ask you in December to send me your success stories from this year that relate to the 13 stops. And I have a goal that I'm going to hear from 100 people when I make that request. And I'd like, I'd like that goal to get so blown away that I don't even know what to do with the number of responses I get back. But that, I think, is a good goal. If 100 people can change their life this year, following the example in those two podcasts, what a great year 2023 would be for the Survival Podcast. With that... I want to remind you, as always, you can help support this show in a number of ways. One, listen to us on Fountain.fm instead of Spotify or iTunes or whatever. Get paid to listen to podcasts you love and maybe share some of the love back to us with Value for Value. When you tip us on Value for Value on, on Fountain for an episode, what you're saying is, I listened to this and I found value in it and I think, you know what, today it was worth a dollar. Maybe tomorrow it's worth five bucks. Maybe it was worth a dime. Maybe it was worth a fraction of a cent. Jack, here's 10 sats. It's, an, it's, an, it's a great way to go. And what y'all should know is 20% of all my uh, sats that are shared with me in Value for Value go to Tom, who maintains the Survival Podcast Network. The actual, like the servers and everything that runs everything. He gets 20% of all that value. So you're, you're not just supporting me. You're supporting one of the key people that makes what I do possible. Just a little thought there. You can also always do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. I'm just running the same item every day uh, this week pretty much, except I think I had a different item on the first day. But it is the, uh, the, the, the Wagyu beef fat that is just one of the greatest things that's ever come into my kitchen. It's made by a company called South Chicago Packing. Wagyu beef tallow, and it is awesome for searing and sautéing and frying and 
all kinds of little kitchen hacks and stuff like that. I still haven't made my smoked tallow yet. I plan on maybe doing that this weekend and sous vide, searing a sous vide steak with smoked Wagyu beef tallow. That sounds awesome, but this is just one of the best products that I have ever found. Big props to Guga over at Guga Foods and Suvi Everything YouTube channels. Uh, he's an awesome dude. He does great videos, very high production value. Uh, if you haven't ever checked him out, you should. And you learn about cool things like that when you do. Um, I- I'm going to tell you, there's probably not a higher-end cooking fat out there, and it's not really that expensive. It It might sound a little expensive at first glance, but it's a 42-ounce tub so it's 2.6 pounds for 30 bucks it'll i i've had mine for over a month and i feel like i haven't really put that big of a dent in it yet a little goes a long way super high smoke point and you can find it at tspaz.com uh in the cooking category just go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down because it did come out this week you find everything that i've ever recommended at tspaz and help support the show and very last consider becoming a member Become a member of the Member Support Brigade. That's the way to really support us. It's a direct relationship, no middleman. I don't do Patreon or any shit like that. I have tons of discounts I've negotiated for you guys. Your membership pays for itself, and you're supporting the show at less than 20 cents an episode. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, finishing off another week, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. They keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month.